You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Hi, welcome to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. I'm Nick Brown. I'm here uh, today with Owen Walker, familiar voice, and also Caroline Phillips. And we're going to be talking about debriefing. The concept of debriefing is probably not a hard one to sell. Um, There are many reflective models and books written on the subject, uh, and examples can be drawn from the military, aviation, healthcare, and many other industries as well. Indeed, it's unlikely that anyone listening now has not been involved in some post hoc reflection of some sort, whether formal or informal. Involvement in a debrief exercise can help to make sense of events and offer the opportunity for learning that can be applied in the future. Its power, at least in part, is that it takes place when the events are fresh in the minds and that all experiences are able to contribute. So in this episode, we'll dig a little into the broad benefits of debriefing and what makes for successful debrief exercise, and as well as what doesn't, within the context of pre-hospital care, of course. How can we optimise the setting and structure in which a productive conversation can be had in order to maximise the outcomes from a debrief? Also, is shared reflection only for those big jobs, or can we apply it to any of our experiences? So hi, guys. You all right? Both okay? Good, thanks, Nick. Good, good. Yeah, really good, thanks, Nick. So um, it's always a good place, I find, in my many years of experience of not doing podcasts, um, to start with a definition. And um, flicking through the uh, Cambridge Dictionary, um, it describes debriefing as a meeting, um, to get information on work that is finished um, to figure out what was successful or not. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but um, nevertheless, that is uh, a more sort of, at least one formal um, definition. Um, Owen, you and I obviously have a, a focus on you know, critical care uh, and perhaps less so for you, Caroline, and I do want to broaden this out to uh, all um, settings where debrief might be applied but in terms of our experience you know what and perhaps I can pose this to, to both of you what what do you think a good debrief is why do we actually have them and I guess as well in that you know what shouldn't it be so yeah I agree Nick it's prudent to start at the start and so indeed sort of the as you said the definition would be um, an Oxford uh, dictionary definition would be a series of questions about a, a completed mission or undertaking. And it re- I think a good debrief really is it's about the questions as much as it is about the answers. And it's about asking the right questions. And what, from my experience, a, a, a good debrief is if you're taking a debrief or hosting a debrief, it's not necessarily about you at all. It's about letting the story tell itself sequentially and chronologically. So going through... Um, from from the first person on scene, or if we're bringing it very much back to pre-hospital care, and what they what they found, what they saw, um, and and then chronologically uh, piecing the story together from from other people. Now, don't get me wrong; there has to be an underlying objective, um, an an underlying presupposition, which is to, which is that we want to reframe this for, for what an optimal scene might be. So the ethos is continual improvement. But, but very much fundamentally letting the story tell itself, asking, asking the right questions of the people involved to, to, to let, the story, let the story involve. Caroline, from your perspective, um, what, 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 what's in your mind at the moment? Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, my, my predominantly where I'm doing my debriefing is in education. So um, far less pressured. Um, but I think one of the key things for me is, is um is exactly that it's asking questions and i think there's a distinct sort of difference between feedback and debriefing and of course feedback comes into the debriefing um process but for me it's about asking questions so i can understand somebody's thinking because as we all know you know however you get to a final outcome there could be many different options many different ways in which uh, for want of a better phrase, to skin a cat. Um, but I think it's understanding the thought process behind somebody's actions and it's questioning in a in a sort of psychologically safe way um, to understand the thinking. Um, and also, for me, it's about shared learning. So it's not about everything has to be done one particular way and it's my way. It's about understanding and learning from both parties and unpicking the actions and where the thinking came from behind the actions. 
So we've um, spoken a bit about the underlying reasons why debrief is important. And also we've moved on as well in, in, in some of that um, dialogue to the practice of it as well, how it actually happens and how it should flow. But some of my thinking here is around, um, in terms of setting the fundamentals, is around the need to have an honest conversation. So that's almost what you need to, to start with. You have to assume that people are giving the best account as they see it of their experience. Um, but essentially, it's uh, about understanding what's happened. There is a focus both in those definitions, Owen, of um, us getting to a point where we can you know, apply that knowledge in the future. But I think, particularly in healthcare, you want to understand the events initially. And some of your staff members may be newer or older or have certain experience in one area and not another area. Um, so uh, we almost want to start with, and as you said, often the best way to do it is that chronological kind of method you actually start with just describing the events and so you all understand what's happened um so yes identifying good practice making improvements um and i think as well you know some of the side benefits if we're just being broad for a moment before we narrow in on how that how this actually happens in practice i think some of the broad benefits in debriefing is around um strengthening teams you know developing relationships um general learning and, and professionalism. It's a good practice to do, I think, for us in all our settings. And we'll be talking a little bit um, about, I guess, how we can apply it to different settings. And um, it's good that you can bring in your educational experience. Um, so, right, so understanding events, um, applying learning for the future, good practice as well as bad practice. We tend to think, you know, we're gonna come up with a list of things that we didn't do so well, uh, but it's important to highlight the benefits. Um, but what, and also strengthening teams as well. But what is it? What is it not? What shouldn't debriefing be? If we're really sort of going to hone a definition and not stray into, you know, more troublesome territory, um, Caroline, what do you think we it, it shouldn't be? I think it it shouldn't be purely feedback. It shouldn't be purely this is the way in which it should be done. Um, for me, yeah. So. I think you're sort of saying keeping things kind of loose and broader and not sort of being too didactic in yeah, perhaps your approach. Yeah. And yeah, what do you think, Owen? Yeah, so I fundamentally agree with what Caroline's saying around it's it, it really isn't a stream of consciousness. It's very much not about you as as the debriefer. <clears throat> it's about the team. Uh, what Caroline shared before about that shared, shared learning ethos, and so. Uh, to, 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 to land on Caroline's point, it's, it's very much about the team, the team perspective, and then maybe reframing those perspectives to, to what an optimal scene might look like. But it very much isn't about the debriefer and it, and, and, and it is that shared consciousness and shared narrative, uh, very much so. Yeah, so I've, I've made some notes and, and, and picked up on that point, really, you know, how, how we avoid it being kind of too top down. Um, I think definitely it shouldn't be uh, tea and medals. Um, now, whilst when, and, and it's tempting to stray into this territory, because when we've done a job, and particularly perhaps if we're thinking of our critical care experience, or in something a bit out of the ordinary, a bit um, that, that's adrenalized people, um, a bit high octane, um, and, uh, you know, you've uh, got the patient to hospital or you've concluded it in some way, uh, the, the, the case. Um, it's um, very easy to slip into the, you know, didn't we do well? You know, um, I thought you were great. Oh, I thought you were great. No, you were better. Um, which isn't necessarily um, sticking to thinking of the definition um, of, of debriefing while we're there. Um, but, it, but equally, on the flip side, it shouldn't be about, blame as well it should be an open honest conversation but you don't want to cross that line between um i think um you know understanding what went happen recognizing shortcomings uh, you don't want to stray beyond that into actually blaming someone um as such because things happen for a reason um, as we know um so we've defined debriefing um to some extent what it is what it's not but of course, you know, applying it to our setting, and Carolyn, you, you, you brought in this interesting dimension of uh, educational debriefing, but from my perspective, I was thinking uh, mostly of debriefing happening on the background of, you know, patients that we've attended in the pre-hospital setting. Um, but but it would be interesting to hear your um, um, uh, thoughts as well. But 
I mean, if I can just focus on sort of a case that perhaps has been that has happened in the pre-hospital environment, uh, and we're all maybe now on the street, um, standing around after the job, or in an ED sort of location, how are we going to optimise the setting for this debrief to actually take place? Yes, great question. So one of the fundamental pre prerequisites, I think, is is around clinical vulnerability. So just modeling vulnerability to others. So what that might look like is is actually everyone goes around and shares their their perspectives. And and I'll share mine um, and but not be afraid not be afraid to say actually I was really stressed out or I feel like I, I lost I got tunnel tunnel visions, or I I lost my bandwidth, or I, indeed I lost my train of thought, and so not being afraid to model, especially if you're taking a debrief, that that vulnerable approach, because what that does is it it gives other people permission to be honest as well, and I think that really for me is the absolute key to getting insight into how we can do things better when other people have got permission to be honest about their emotions because they're high, because we we are in these fractious highly stressful situations which in flash teams so um so for me it's about modeling vulnerability it's also about yeah that honest discourse and 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 then trying to get from the team and from myself a a, a, a an optimal um a, a, an optimal scene what, what would this look like if 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 it would if a been optimal or b um if if we'd have had a second second run at it second run at the patient care or indeed something else so it's it's about that honesty and and, and asking everyone's opinion of, of, of what they think we could have maybe done better so you're you're sort of straying a little bit into the sort of structure and the format of it but how do you optimize the setting and location bearing in mind that you know, we are pre-hospital, so um, we're not in a workplace with perhaps comfortable sofas and a tea and coffee machine nearby. Before we actually get onto the point where we're sat down trying to define why we're there in the first place, how, how do we? How do you generally sort of make it happen, like practically, Owen? Yeah, so in the back of an ambulance, um, or yeah. indeed in the if, the, if there is a, a side room in the ED, but very much away from other people, so people feel feel uh, comfortable and safe to to share. Um, and it really is about trying trying to silence the 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 distra- distractions from uh, the environment, so that people feel safe and can focus on exactly uh, on, on what we're doing here and now. Yeah, sure. How about you, Caroline? And perhaps bring in, well, your pre-hospital experience as well. Owen and I are often doing this on the back of some you know, death and destruction, but for, for normal jobs as well, uh, if we can phrase it like that. And in educational settings, how do you achieve that? Yeah, Practically. absolutely. I'm thinking back to, to my PPED days and... Right. Um, yeah. You know, and obviously that's a much smaller, smaller group. It's either, um, well, it's usually just three of you, maybe four if you've got um, a fast response unit there as well. Um, But yeah, absolutely much less sort of high pressure generally where you're doing your feedback. Um, I think one of the one of the big things for me, just from a really practical perspective, and it's really just touching on what Owen's already said is making sure that that little things that maybe people aren't quite aware of that could be super distracting aren't taking place so whether you're in the education setting or whether you're in the back of the ambulance people aren't putting equipment away people aren't rustling with rubbish um people are just all sitting quietly and i think um Certainly to an extent, there is a little bit of of literature on the benefit of actually doing a debrief um, as soon as possible before any of that tidying up has taken place so that um, it's as absolutely as fresh as possible in in the mind and you're not doing it after you've done your equipment and after you've done your PRF um, or your EPCR, um, you know, you can do it as soon as possible. So really as quickly as possible I would say and um, and minimizing those external distractions for me. Yeah and I think one of the things that can help with that is that people know why they are there. I think it's very easy to fall into debriefs, it's very easy to sort of you know just start talking particularly if you're uh, you know a PPED, a team leader, you know advanced paramedic, critical care paramedic and you're sort of taking that lead responsibility and you just sort of all get together and you've got somebody you know scribbling on a PRF so as you say somebody putting away equipment um, but actually getting into the back of the ambulance um, that sort of um, 
I don't know if you use this phrase safe space, but you know, somewhere where you can have a honest conversation with each other um, without distraction or minimizing as much as possible. Um, introductions, setting clear aims, um, I think can really help set the tone. Um, and um, sometimes what I do do is, is, is target my questioning at someone that has strayed into you know, writing uh, on a PRF. I think the other thing as well, people do, crews do feel pressure. Uh, and certainly in our experience, crews um, are expected to turn around jobs within a certain time frame. And if you can remove that as well to optimise um, you know, the decrease so that the pressure's off. So actually, we don't have to panic about you know, the clock you know, and, and writing something down or putting something away. Um, buying the coffees is, always goes down well as well, <laughs> I find. Um, uh, although not so much with my wife, um, my coffee bills are horrendous. Um, but um, yes, introduction, setting the aims, and I think um, often people are because we're not we, we work in teams, of course, but often team members are unfamiliar, um, unlike in other settings, other industries where you know the team regularly meet together, they brief and debrief, sometimes every day, sometimes more than every day. But we're all kind of slightly. Um, varied in our relationships with, these, uh, with each other. So I think actually introductions is a good thing, um, setting down the aims. Um, and to get people talking as well, um, and, and leading from the front, sometimes I, um, as well as sticking to a chronological format, sometimes identify something quite early on that I think I could have done better. So it kind of gives other people permission in a way. Um, and I don't know if that's what you were talking about when you refer to sort of vulnerability, Owen, as well, and just dealing with, you know, other people being allowed and given permission for, you know, to speak openly and honestly. Um, but, um, yeah, anything from, else on the back of that from you guys? So just to just to agree with what um, what you and Caroline were saying, really, just uh, especially what Caroline was just saying around just doing it nice and quickly whilst it's fresh in your mind, and just something you just mentioned there, Nick, which is that there might be learning points which capture the um, the emotion. So so it's interesting, isn't it? We're talking about hot debrief now versus cold debrief, or very much more of a uh, a latent, you know, uh, extended uh, debriefing period. And this, so it is fresh, you know, it is emotive, it is. And and although it's prudent to be, and we can talk about the structure in a second, but factual, it's it's okay to 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 engage with some of those emotions. And so, to Caroline's point around just doing it quickly, whilst the things on your mind that 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 might be running at 100 miles an hour through through your mind from from a, from maybe a really stressful, you know, pediatric arrest or indeed a, a really difficult RTC or uh, trauma job, it's good to get get that out nice and early because being able to reorder and reprocess some of these learning points and, and emotions can sometimes be the difference between some really substantive mental health issues or PTSD or, or being able to refocus and reorder these. So I think, like I say, getting, this, getting it out nice and early on the table is, is absolutely key because, because then you can hopefully start to process some of these horrendous images, horrendous circumstances nice and early and, and and hopefully start to reprocess and reorder them and if i can just add to that as well i think i think as well as the processing them early you know when you when you look or when you speak to people perhaps it you know if you want to find a little bit of information after a serious incident that's happened it's amazing what you can forget if you've been in a very traumatic, um, involved in a very traumatic case, um, or perhaps you felt extremely um, uh, stressed, you had a lot of red mist, it's amazing what you can actually block out and forget. Um, so, so, so doing doing that quickly, yeah, I would just, just emphasise on that point as well. It's not so much, you know, about, it, it is about processing things quickly, but it's also about remembering them before they can get psychologically blocked out yeah yeah definitely that, that that very much fits within the sort of definition of debriefing doing it doing it as early as possible um and in a hot debrief you know it is exactly for that reason i suppose there's an awful lot to this topic and we could move into sort of uh you know all sorts of reflection and protracted learning that happens you know indeed extending to inquiries that, that, that happen in in months and years afterwards but um optimizing the setting um that debriefing can happen 
just post-event. Another thing I think about as well is, um, I'll just drop in here, um, there's a, and I'm borrowing the phrase, which um, I'm sure has been borrowed itself many times, but leaving rank at the door. So um, you try not to have this hierarchy. And it's difficult because, you know, uh, if you are, as I say, a team leader or um, an advanced paramedic or some sort of manager, um, hospital care manager, people are naturally going to look to you to sort of lead and steer people. But um, I think if you can be mindful of that as someone who is organising a debrief, um, I think that it does help to have somebody to offer structure and keep people on track because many debriefs have just turned into general conversations and gone up dead ends and we've sort of lost our thread a bit. Um, but moving on to the actual structure, yeah, so we've already touched on... Um, being able to sort of tell a bit of a story, thinking as I do, the, the, the two main benefits of debrief, which is firstly making sense, you know, of the past and then, you know, applying that to the future. Um, yeah, we tend to, although there are many, many models out there and I'd be interesting to hear from, from you guys if you use any, but we tend to stick to this chronological story. Um, that, that kind of process. Um, wh why do we do that? I mean, when, when is it best to use uh, a, a sort of we we started here and, and moving to the point where the patients at hospital versus a right let's let's do a you know a quick one good thing and one thing we can we could uh, do better. Uh, when do you tend to apply different approaches? So I from my perspective, I think we probably apply the chronological approach for a number of reasons. Really, I think it's I think it's more to um, let the narrative tell itself but not to not to miss anything really I, I and and also to give everyone a voice um from from right. a perspective of of um it's this ripple effect isn't it so you know the, the 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 stone hitting the pond from the initial impact or incident you know what happened what was the initial ripple and what were the what what were the outward ripples of of that effect so it's it's almost you know it's it's and, and like you said, there's many different types of, of debriefing, um, especially in high fidelity clinical simulation. You can you can do lots of different empirical types of debriefing, but the chronological and sequential debriefing, I think what it does is it helps reframe, but also just just allow people to to tell what 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 was probably very stressful at the moment. I always say, as I'm sure you both do, it's actually the most difficult for the first people who arrive on scene, especially in a critical care sense, because they are interfacing with what is quite a chaotic scene and they have to make some kind of order or system out of some some quite chaotic um, multimodal information coming at them in, in different different aspects, and so I, I've all, I, I always try to extend a lot of empathy to, to, for the first people starting the debrief because quite frequently it is extremely stressful being the first people to start to reorder that process, um, and and having in your mind that they may have been through hell for the past five or ten minutes trying to trying to get some semblance of calm. So yeah, so for, for me, it's it's giving those people uh, the, the first people on scene, and then and then the the, the attending people beyond that uh, a sense a voice, and 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 then being able to express that voice and express from their perspective what they thought uh, they thought happened. Caroline, how do we cope with people? And we've seen we've all experienced this. They're in, they're there in body, but but not sort of in mind or spirit, and 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 our for reasons it might not be so obvious, but not engaging. How do we sort of get them involved? Or, or indeed, should we? Should we just let them be quiet? Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I think, um, I think you know, it's easier if you, if in my situation where I generally know the people that I'm debriefing, mm. so I know if their behaviour perhaps is, um, if that's the, 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 the normal way that they portray themselves. Um, you know, certainly some people... Um, are really listening, but perhaps don't demonstrate these sort of active listening, you know, textbook active listening signs that I would think, you know, they're not making eye contact. They might be scribbling on a on pad, but actually it's the way they process information really well. Um, so when I when I'm debriefing in education, I, I tend tend to know them, which is really helpful. I think if if you're 
on scene, um, perhaps, in, and of course you guys are the expert in this, but if you guys are on scene and there's somebody who isn't engaging um, in the debrief, I think, and certainly I have experienced this on a couple of occasions, um, I, I, I would wonder why that is. Is it because they have just found the whole thing far too stressful or perhaps they have found um, or they perhaps are aware that they, they've made an error and they really don't want to engage in it? And I think... Um, you know, while while debriefing is a really excellent tool and it is it's um sorry an excellent process and and if it's done well, it's really important from a psychological perspective. We know that debriefing with colleagues is one of the best psychological things that we can do as as healthcare providers. Yeah. I think we also need to be mindful that sometimes it can be harmful if we if we push it too much and actually sometimes we just need to leave people um if they want to go and have a cup of tea and and sit up you know at the side um i think we have to let people do that sometimes i think if you've got somebody there who's maybe just a little bit more timid perhaps they're a newer member of staff maybe they're a student actually just asking some open-ended questions to them um how did you feel about that you know it must have been difficult you know, for example, being first on scene or this is your first recess, how did you feel about that? Asking some open-ended questions um, and definitely like Owen said um, at the beginning, just being sort of demonstrating vulnerability um, hopefully should help open those people up a bit and, and having some empathy, yeah. You, you took the um, words, not that you can see it off the page in front of me, yes, in terms of questioning techniques, definitely. I. I um, I try to adopt a um, I think it's called a Socratic <laughs> approach um, and actually ask those questions rather than and again you know I think that can if you start off broad before you focus in on some detail particularly when you want to impress upon the group um, a great learning point but necessarily that might involve highlighting um, what could be considered an error there was a case I did a little while ago where. I turned up to a cardiac arrest and the paramedic um, who had performed an easy IO um, had done so in an adult patient in the distal femur. So I got handed over by someone else. I saw the IO in an unusual position. Um, sometimes I mean, we'll go distal femur in a child, but not usually an adult. Um, but it seemed to be, and I asked him, is it working okay? Is it flowing okay? Drugs going in and everything seemed to suggest that it was okay, although the site was slightly um, unconventional. So not wanting to highlight it then and, and disaffect anybody on scene, um, it was working well and secured. We took the patient to hospital, handed over, and of course I handed over that the EZIO was in the distal femur and, and not more commonly seen proximal tibia, at which point, you know, he'd heard the handover and, and sort of turned a shade of sort of well, pale. Um, and I knew this would be a tough one to, 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 to talk to him about. Um, so I actually took him to one side before we had the main debrief and sort of allowed him to talk through what happened. And, and he was none the wiser. He was absolutely dumbfounded as to why he'd cited the EZIO uh, above the knee rather than below the knee. So we actually jumped in the ambulance, you know, a safe space, shut the door. The other guys there were two ambulances involved actually so they were outside the ED in the other ambulance and we just recreated the job and basically it came down to the fact that he'd approached that in, in his training and education it was the first one he'd done for real in his training and education in the um, classroom he'd always approached the patient or the, or the dummy if you like mannequin from a caudal direction and now he was in a pre-hospital care being as it is you know he was now in a different position looking at the knee and in his mind thought, I need to put the easy IO in, needle in below the knee, but now below is above. Anyway, soon as he had that realisation, his whole demeanour completely changed and he understood what had happened. So he didn't think, you know, he wasn't left there still thinking, why has this happened? You know, I've gone mad. You know, I've, <laughs> what, what, how could I have done that? Um, and, and obviously some reassurance that actually he, he, he got it in place and it was working well. But... So much so that um, was was he happy that uh, then when we all came together and had the debrief, he wanted to actually articulate that learning himself, and it was really powerful. And of course, he got lots of support from his colleagues because I think when people do see you as open and honest, and that's that's almost like the the parody here. You know, you can sort of 
be quiet to look good. But actually, if you are open and able to offer some vulnerability, often you get a lot of support as well as sort of shared learning. Yeah. Anyway, sorry for that monologue. Um, uh, so I know, Owen, that you, you like a model, don't you? Uh, <laughs> in more than... Model. <laughs> in a number of contexts. Um, no, but I w just to flick through some of them um, prior to us coming together and having a chat, I mean, there, there are dozens, of course. SVAR, STOP, IMARCH, three phases, and then more formally Gibbs, Kolb, um, and, and so on, and root cause analysis. Um, do you apply any in your practice are in sort of formally or do you tend to sort of have a more informal approach I guess in these sort of hot debrief situations yeah so Nick that's a good that's a good good question and so I I'm not necessarily as prescriptive uh, with the model that I approach um, I I think um, quite a a, a narrative approach is is preferential, but what I, I do like to do within the debrief. So there is a few models. Uh, there's uh, there's the Zygmunt Kapperson Zukov model of 2011, and this is just a 3D model of debriefing, diffusing, discovering, and deepening. And 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 essentially, it really does harken to what we were saying around sort of diffusing any extremely emotive situations, um, so that the learner can go back and recall events. Uh, and to Caroline's point, just really engage with those nice and nice and nice and early on. Uh, discovering, so um, the three D, so second D is discovering, allowing the learner to reflect on their performance and identify any gaps in their in their knowledge, and then um, and then deepening, allowing the learner to sort of consider how they can apply, like just what you just the example you gave there, Nick, around how they can apply what they've learned to future situations. So it's that sort of diffusing, discovering, deepening. Now, one thing I've really learned from, from not just from critical care practice, but from, you know, years and years of pre-hospital care practice is trying to pan people out. I, I, I myself have, uh, have been um, subject to this where you're very much focused on your own practice and performance. And if, it, if that's been suboptimal, you, you know, you're consistently beating yourself up about that missed easy IO or indeed um, that cannula or the intubation. And, and, but trying to get people to sort of try and sit back and not only forgive themselves because that's like, an essential part of the debrief and, and move through their own self-performance, but look, look to the team performance as well. So, um, so, and I consistently have had to engage with this, really start to put my own performance aside and look at the team performance and how we performed as, as a team as well and, and, and move through, you know, I've got one of our colleagues um, gave me a fantastic quote. He said, you know, the difference between the good F1 drivers and the great F1 drivers is that the, the great F1 drivers can leave the last corner behind them. And the, and the ones which which actually let their past performance affect their their present uh, uh, mental state or indeed their their present performance are the ones which really suffer. And, and you know the best F1 drivers can just forget the last corner if they mess that up, and they can still have an optimal race go, going forward. So it really is about bringing people, drawing a line under any 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 stre any stress or any or indeed any suboptimal performance. And then bringing panning back and looking at that at that team performance. But that three D model is is a great one. Um, and again, it's just it's just that diffusing, discovering, and deepening. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, what we're asking people to do in debriefs is to focus on not always, but sometimes focus on something that hasn't gone well and be able to sort of detach ourselves emotionally from that event, but not so much that we can't apply it in the future. Um, but, but, but I mean, that's, that's the art form, isn't it? I think in a nutshell of debriefing and being able to, um, to create an environment where we can do that and we understand that, you know, we're human beings and we're fallible and no one's perfect. And, but yet we can, it's life, isn't it really? We're learning from the past. Um, but in your setting, Caroline, do, do you tend to, um, use any models, I'm thinking as well, these models are great, but I'm always worried about the practical application of them and the need to, um, with, with, some, with, with the flowcharts and algorithms that we have bulging out of our pockets, to pull out the right one at the right time and use it in a way that, you know, it sometimes feels a bit unnatural because we're not always doing the same thing. But so in the most naturalistic way as possible, how do you think we can get people to 
debrief, particularly thinking about non-critical care as well. And sometimes, I mean, you, you already touched on it, Caroline, but um, you know, they're often just like, it's just like, you know, you and your crewmate, uh, as it were. Um, is there a model that we should advocate them using or an approach uh, or a model's helpful in that situation? Yeah, I think I think you've, you've mentioned sort of most of the models that, that I that I would be aware of, Nick. Well, Owen came up with one that I hadn't, which is which is typical of Owen. I knew he'd, I knew he'd think of uh, come up with some model that I'd never heard of. I think I think it it depends again just on whether um, it certainly from a learning perspective, and 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 most of my debriefs now are cold debriefs. Um, so if I if I know the people, if they're in a learning situation, or if I'm doing a debrief with some clinicians um, post event, because we're looking at perhaps there's been um, um, an inquiry about about the care that was given. So if I can separate it into those two, I think if I if I'm in a learning situation, if depending on where the learners are at within within their learning. Say, for example, they're learning a skill like ALS or trauma management. Um, I will I will spend a lot more time doing a debrief with them. And I generally tend to follow a more narrative approach um, so that they can really talk through all of the elements and explain um, their rationale. It's really about me trying to understand their rationale um, behind their decision making. So really, I tend to follow more of a narrative approach there. If if the learners are getting towards um, a stage where they really um, have, they're really polished in their ALS management, for example, then I might go through and do do the method of, could you please tell me one thing that you really liked about this scenario and one thing that perhaps you might have done slightly differently or a different approach that you might have had if you were in this scenario. The challenge, I think, when you ask people to provide one good point and one point for improvement is that I think perhaps because we're all very overly British, we, we don't really like um, providing one point for, for improvement. Um, so, and, and sometimes there, there aren't that many points for improvement. Um, so I, I tend to steer clear of that one unless I'm, I'm really short of time and perhaps the learners really, really are very well polished in whatever they're learning at the moment and they really know what those answers should be. Um, uh, and in terms of um, in terms of supporting people who perhaps are clinicians who I'm working with in terms of a cold debrief and trying to understand a little bit about their clinical decision making following an inquiry, whether it's a, a complaint or a quality alert that's come through, it's really understanding their narrative. And I tend to use the Gibbs approach, um, not rigidly, but I tend to use the can you tell me what happened? Um, and, and also, I think that the biggest thing for me really is about um, is about asking, having those questions, hypothetical questions or inquisitive questions, which are, did you consider doing it this way? Or had you thought about doing it this way? And um, particularly if there are certain learning points that I think perhaps might have been better, I will try and draw them in that way. Um, and then try and understand, you know, why clinical decisions were made in a particular way. So, yeah, I think that's brilliant phrasing, actually. And I think um, that's almost, you know, if I was highlighting any point from this podcast, it would be that one. And I, and I think that that questioning, suggesting is a really effective way at getting over the Britishness, as you quite rightly allude to, um, and not wanting to be seen to criticise someone or be seen to criticising someone in front of other people as well. Um, and actually getting people to focus on your door you are turning it back onto sort of the individual in a way aren't you for them to sort of um validify i suppose in saying did you think about this actually you're the one that's come up with it but you're offering it back to them yeah i like that a lot um do you how many obviously you've had involvement with students and pipetting but how many do you think then go on to debrief ordinarily you've gone to Doris she's fallen on the floor um, and we've all heard this sort of commentary when we've been in sort of case based with you sort of meetings you know oh, I haven't done anything that interesting I just I just I just do like little old ladies who need picking up off the floor I mean it's interesting Owen and you probably back me up here and although our focus is sort of critical care but those jobs that often you think are the most mundane well I don't know what we can really learn from this particular case 
end up spurning sort of conversations um, that go off in all sorts of directions and actually are very interesting at the very least and come up with learning, uh, you know, at best. Um, but this culture of sort of debriefing, how do you think we can actually improve it so that, you know, when there's not one of us there to facilitate it, it's still going on? So to your point, Nick, you can always learn something from clinical cases, irrespective of the case, really. And so I, I actually think laying out the information, even on what might might appear to be quite a mundane case, the, if, if the person who's taking the debrief afterwards can really start to unpack, or indeed collectively, you can start to unpack what's, what might be typical or atypical about any chronic, because there's certainly things we can learn about chronic disease, uh, which, which broadens up the horizons of, 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 our, of our knowledge. Because anyone who's practiced personal care for any length of time realizes the more you do it, the less you know. The, the, you know the, the the fringes of 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 our knowledge around the whole the whole array of medicine that we interface with both acute and chronic you know and within pre hospital care you know we are we're dealing with mental health we're dealing with oncology we're dealing with uh, gynecology and obstetrics we're dealing with pediatrics we're dealing with elderly with trauma we're dealing with um a, a, a whole array of, of an expanse of, of, of specialities which within the, their own subject domain have got specialist consultants so you any you can extrapolate learning from any and every situation and a lot of what we interface with maybe to your point and, and around certainly around the non-critical care stuff is 95 percent of, of prospect care is is non-critical care and actually the gp world to, to us is an expansive world of of, of of looking at some of the the, the wider aspects of care which which actually, you know, we don't necessarily understand, or not understand, but interface with and interact with every day around social prescribing, around some of the new novel anticoagulant drugs, around new antihypertensives, different different modalities of treatment, but different concepts as well. So there's always something to 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 to, to learn. Now, just just before I finish my spiel, uh, just whilst it's in my, in my mind, something Caroline said, which I think you've landed quite rightly on which is around active listening and asking the right questions an active listening model yeah, i like a good model um an active listening model um <laughs> which which i would use really is is this one around from the center for creative leadership around the seven key components of being attentive to everything caroline was saying to asking open questions to asking probing questions to re- requesting clarification where it's needed paraphrasing the narrative be attuned uh, and reflect uh, and reflect feelings and then summarize but very much those those first three which is around asking open-ended questions so the seven key active listening skills which we can put in the show notes around and and if uh, adopting those active listening skills as a fundamental of debrief is is probably where you'll get the most out of out of that debrief yeah conversation literally does well communication literally comes into every aspect well, of life, doesn't it, really, to be honest. Um, uh, that's, that's for sure. Um, so, Car- oh, sorry, go on, Caroline. Sorry. I was just going to say, those skills, you, you may think, oh, do you know what, I'm in a role where I actually I, I don't do an awful lot of debriefing. I only do it every so often, um, all the more reason to practice it. But actually, those skills can be used in, in really anything, whether you're having a conversation with your friend, whether you're having a, a clinical conversation with, with a patient, you're assessing a patient. Actually, you know, all of those things just mentioned, you know, we, we ask open-ended questions, then we probe a little bit more, then we recap. They can be practised really daily so it's it's a a great thing to know and and to practice and continually practice and I think one of the really good things you know about communication we we know that there's some people who you know who just born really great communicators but actually the evidence has shown that communication skills can be learnt and it might not be completely natural to you if you're if you're a brand new medic or you know brand new EAC or whatever your role is, but you can develop and learn those, and that's what the evidence shows. So it's absolutely worthwhile doing. No, definitely, and and you're right to um, pick up on the point. I mean, debriefing, reflection. There are a number of words we could use, but it doesn't necessarily need to be lots of people in the back of an ambulance and and one of us there, but. Um, Talking about the back of the ambulance, 
Um, so on those bigger jobs, often the team will involve more than just people in green. So there'll be people in blue there, um, dark blue. Um, sometimes, of course, I mean, I, I can think of a recent debrief that I did um, with ED staff. We were invited in, actually, to, to have a, a debrief with them after a case. Um, and we were, there was another case where we were having a debrief that involved um, a sad case in a prison. And so we asked some of the healthcare and prison staff there to come in on our debrief. But are there any sort of rules or considerations as to when we allow other people to come in to our conversations because um, clearly there could well be benefit for more than just you know our immediate sort of green family team yeah so i think yeah it's a good point uh, nick and 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 having built rapport in this flash team maybe just over the process of minutes um yeah, you're then opening up the sort of safe space to, to, to other people, which were still involved within that scene. Um, I think trying to set the same tone is, is still key. So tr still trying to set a, a tone where we're still, we're trying to learn. We, we can be vulnerable enough to, uh, to open up what might have either been suboptimal or we could have, you know, we could have done things potentially better. Um, I think it's, you can still get that safe space. I think um, to our earlier points around get, uh, silencing the distractions from, so however big the team is, silence the distractions, modeling from the front, so still modeling that vulnerability so that actually other people um, from other services see, can see the tone and can see the baseline of vulnerability i think is still still powerful and it also and then it may it, it means our own colleagues still are not afraid to share maybe maybe some of their emotions or indeed feelings as they were as they were sort of going through these 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 high stress situations so i think the same approach um, although it's more difficult because there's lots of people that you might not know and it is harder to infer that sense of vulnerability when there's a, a larger team but 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 trying to get that and and tell the story chron chronologically as well and very much include them in that narrative because i think giving uh, other agencies a voice is, is 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 key yeah i think that actually this is where you know communication is really important um and probably a situation where some leadership in terms of the debrief is important as well. Um, if, if I've got police colleagues in the back of the ambulance as well, then clearly some of the uh, debrief is going to touch on technical skills that you know they won't be aware of. So that you know you, there needs to be some sort of like there needs to be a translator there um, to sort of say this is what we mean by that. Um, and th there is an art form, I think, probably in. Um, in being able to involve people and you know fit parts of the jigsaw puzzle together well, keep people's interest. One of the um, issues I think that can come about in debriefs, and this can have people stray into you know starting to you know write on their PRF or drift off and clean something, um, is that um, they lose their focus and they just become a rambling conversation. Um, so I think there are clearly times when you need someone there to to steer the conversation and probably particularly in a case where um, you're with, with with sort of police colleagues um, and, and, and or indeed firefighters. Um, I think as well if you're crossing over into other healthcare um, territories like you know ED staff or healthcare staff in another setting then um, you know they just need you, you can over plan these things and it probably would be over planning to to plan how beforehand you all fit together but I think that's one of the power of um of, of the kind of more chronological narrative approach that you deal with things you know as you get there and you question and step on um as you go along and you know just be mindful of who's there um and what their own kind of needs and interests may or may not be um some of the things that I sort of wrote down as being relevant to touch on so that we don't get in a situation where we're just sort of like rambling but um, and, and having a more general conversation and keeping it relevant to ambulance-specific um, territory. Um, I think sometimes it's important to, um, to get the context. So we often start with, you know, who got there first? But actually, you know, it could be worth spending some time um, 
covering what happened before you got there, and indeed the 999 call. And, and I guess I'm probably more um, aware of that from times where I've been in the control room, heard a call come in, decided to activate myself, and then gone out. So I've got that you know, perspective that other people don't necessarily or can't necessarily bring to it. Um, but certainly, I think, you know, the, the response to scene, talking about the environment, that's something that we, that I think often gets skirted over in, in debriefs. The actual, we, we ask people to do a lot. We ask people to you know, think um, about the patient, move them, assess them, treatment. But actually, within the context, there's always that new novel environment that changes, you know, job to job to job. Um, and yes, the assessment of the patient, the care that we're delivering, um, and also any compromises that we might have to make, which come probably with pre-hospital care more than patients who are seated, you know, or, or lying down in an ED department where it's well lit, well resourced, staffed, dry, warm, air conditioned. Um, anything else that you think we should be making sure that we cover in terms of the detail as we go through this kind of... Uh, you know, story with, 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 and with, with everyone more present. I think, I think one of the, one of the main things, I guess, for me is that, is, as the facilitator, as the person leading the debrief, going in with a, a clear idea of the questions or the learning points that are very clear, if there are any, that you want to get out of the conversation. So. Um, I'm sorry, I think I'm probably backtracking a little bit on one of the questions that, that you asked earlier, Nick, but I, th I think that would be one of the key things for me is, is, is were there any key learning things that need to come out of this conversation um, that, you, that you want to bring up? And definitely, of course, including those in the summary. But I think one of the things about talking about if you're having a debrief, including other people who are there, whether it's police, fire, whoever, is I think just remembering and appreciating again that 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 one of the key benefits of doing the debrief is the psychological aspect. And that if you've got police there who were who were doing CPR for 10 minutes before you got there or somebody else, um, giving them an opportunity to speak and then reassuring them that the, the care that they did was 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 brilliant if it was or, or, or whatnot, I think is really important. And then if there are key learning points that you want to 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 draw out, then probably where you can getting those in early and of course including them in the summary I think in terms of key learning points I think I think sometimes certainly from a cold debrief perspective you can fall into the danger of going through everything in in so much detail and it you know to the to the fight you know the the you know the absolute last degree but actually for me I think thinking about three key, three key points that you want to draw out of the debrief whether it's hot or cold I think is a really helpful thing to try and bear in mind what are the three key things that you'd like to draw out of this yes I'm glad you said that that's kind of one of the last things on my list here yes the learning being too specific too detailed and then you don't have the or rather you have the limited transferability. Um, it, there's always that, uh, that saying, you know, if you listen to a lecture for an hour, you know, you know, how much will you remember? You'll come away, you know, if someone quizzed you the next day, 80%, 90%, maybe 50%, who, who uh, maybe, maybe a lot less um, that you'd have forgotten. Um, so um, yes, um, it, sometimes short, sharp, punchy is actually better than actually going over things with a fine tooth comb, as they say. So I think we covered a lot of ground and um, perhaps we could sort of end on with this. And I'll come to you first, Caroline, because um, you see the future often more than Owen and I do in terms of like, new staff coming in. Um, so you're a PPED, you go out and you do your cardiac arrest um, and you have a great debrief um, afterwards. But then the crew are going to go off and do... Um, the little old ladies, as we know, um, often take up the bulk of ambulance work. So how do we instill, I guess, uh, a culture of them to sort of carry on um, talking, even if it is that informal conversation, you know, job after job, learning from, you know, 
everyday ambulance work uh, as well as those big sort of critical care jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I've got to sort of uh, paraphrase Katie Crichton here, who who is our um, wellbeing lead, um, and she speaks very openly about this. Um, One of the things that really, um, really actually made her sort of move away from clinical practice and into a more and sort of well-being role is is um, that she went to an elderly gentleman that had fallen over, and um, it, it really just struck a chord with her um, in terms of linking with with one of her grandparents. And I think it's a really good um, thing to remember is that from a from a um, sort of a psychological trigger point of view, it's often not. The big cases that contribute to our negative well-being as ambulance clinicians it's often the um the seeing lots of elderly people who have been on the floor for a long period of time seeing people who perhaps can't afford the heating etc so i think being able to remember that and being able to then um consider just having a quick chat with your colleague after after every case after Oh, she was a nice lady that was a bit sad just opening up those conversations it won't be necessarily a formal debrief after each case that you do that would you know take a lot of the time up during the day but just bearing in mind that everyone is affected slightly differently including our, our colleagues by things that we might not even think would would upset them so just bearing that in mind as a as as a prompt I guess to start having conversations about uh, that that was a bit tricky. That was a bit sad. You know, how do you think we did there? I think is a is a good thing to remember. Yes, we've all got examples, haven't we, of those really sad social cases. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Often it is those ones that you know uh, tug on the heartstrings more than um, more than the big jobs, uh, as as we would call them. Uh, often people sort of say you're used to as a paramedic having people say to you, um, oh, you must see some sights. And of course, you know, what's the worst thing you've seen? And of course, they're thinking of, you know, blood, guts and gore. But um, there's a comeback that um, um, one of my advanced, old advanced paramedic colleagues has to that question. And it's an absolute showstopper, but there's nothing gory about it. It's this absolute tragic scene that he paints in about two sentences. And it's probably too uh, depressing to, 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 to touch on now. Um, involving, you know, this, this family in this terrible social situation. And it, and it literally is, it would just stop you um, and, and have your jaw on the floor. But it's got nothing to do with sort of, you know, cardiac arrest and people bleeding to death. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's a hearts and minds thing, isn't it? You know, I think, you know, debriefing. Um, we have to think about how we um, understand the events so that we can move on from, you know, some of the more potentially worrying things that we see but also how we can practically apply the learning to you know make a, a difference for people in the future any um last gems words of wisdom from you owen any model that you want to throw in at last minute i'm full of gems nick i'm full of gems um no just for um just everything that's been said, really, um, qu- quite rightly, as you both said, the debrief really is a meld of the, the technical and non-technical skills that, that come together within a scene. You know, uh, and uh, primarily you, the, the facets of technical skills will interplay from from um, a larger perspective, your non-technical efforts. And so it's just recalling the interaction between both and to, to Caroline's point is sort of go easy on yourself. So if you're in the debrief, be kind to yourself because these situations are really difficult. And actually the aggregation, as Caroline was saying, of some of consistently some of these really adverse situations or the social deprivation you might see on a day-to-day basis is be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself if you fail because, and if it's brought out in the debrief, that's okay you know, the best F1 drivers can leave the last corner behind them. So just, you know, draw a line in the sand, learn from it, and, and like you said, move on. And so be kind to yourself. L- know that interplay, the, 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 the great from differentiating the great from the good is, is all about your non-technical skills and then overlaying them with some fantastic technical skills as well. And the first and foremost, the best non-technical skill, as Caroline said earlier, is active listening. So, so to be an active listener 
and to, and to actually be a anthropologist so to be an observer of man it be observe the scene observe what's happening always be an anthropologist of the group of the team and of yourself so really um, be aware of the emotions that are coming up in you be aware of the decisions you're taking and and watch the teamwork and and then once you've done that you can start to reflect in the moment and and afterwards so that melds that anthropology and that be kind to yourself Yes, we often do concentrate on the technical aspects of care. And interesting, in your example previously, Aaron, you said the, the missed IO, the missed cannula, the missed DT tube. Um, I think the more time I spend doing this job, and particularly in critical care, it is about the decision-making and the thinking. And it'd be right to focus on that in terms of debriefing and not just, you know, how slick was, you know, that bit of plastic that you shoved into that uh, other body. Um so thanks, Owen. Thanks, Caroline. Uh, I've had a great conversation. I think we've pretty much covered everything um, that we were going to. Owen, I think we'll put some show notes up on the website, so do check those out. Uh, but thanks for joining us. Hopefully that's been useful for you, and we will look forward to seeing you soon on another Pre-Hospital Care podcast. Bye for now. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care podcast on the Medics Academy Network. 